This evening, we'll be looking to Leviticus chapter 24, and uh, as we're turning there to Leviticus chapter 24, just want to point out from the outset that there are there are three main things that uh, that stand out here in Leviticus 24. Uh, a couple of matters uh, in regard to uh, furniture of the tabernacle. So there's the lampstand, and there is the the bread of the presence. And we'll we'll be looking at uh, both of uh, those two things first in uh, in verses one through nine, and then the third thing uh, that stands out here is the the name of the Lord. The the Lord had given his his name to his people. It was uh, to be reverenced, and we see an occasion upon which it was not reverenced in in verses ten through. 23. So we'll be looking at the chapter under those, uh, under those two divisions, but looking in those two divisions at three things, the lamp, the bread, and the name of the Lord. So let's, let's first look at, uh, at verses 1 through 9. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light, to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. You shall put pure frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. Now, Leviticus chapter 24 obviously falls between chapter 23 and chapter 25. Now, the last couple of times that we were in uh, Leviticus on Sunday evenings or Sunday afternoon, as the case may be, we were looking at chapter 23 in regard to the various Sabbaths that were to be kept in the Old Testament. And then in chapter 25, what we find there is instruction given with uh, regard to the, the Sabbath years. You remember how after every six year there was to be a Sabbath year, and then at the conclusion of 50 years, a year of, of jubilee. And here in chapter 24, we see an aspect of what would have taken place on the seventh day Sabbath, namely the changing of the bread of the presence. And so, so these, uh, these six cakes, uh, or excuse me, these, uh, these 12 cakes, six cakes in two rows, were to be put on the, on the golden table there in the holy place on the Sabbath day. And uh, one writer um, argued that uh, that this uh, this scene here of the uh, the light shining on this bread presents Israel as it is paused in worship 
before the Lord as it should be on those Sabbath occasions described in chapter 23 and chapter 25. And so, first of all here, we have this command given in regard to the lamp. The lamp here is the the menorah, that which is described in in Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40, as having uh, those those six branches, seven lamps in all. And so, you you know, uh, you've probably seen the the pictures or the, the emblems of them, how they have these branches coming out. And, uh, and then there would be, there would be those, uh, those six branches with one lamp on each branch and then one lamp on the center stem of the lamp. And it is, according to Leviticus 24, the responsibility of the Israelite community to provide clear oil of beaten olives as the fuel for this lamp. And it's the responsibility of Aaron then to keep it in order, to keep it burning before the Lord. And to understand the, the function of the lamp and the connection of the lamp with what follows here in Leviticus 24, it's helpful to note from Numbers uh, chapter 8, verse 2, that part of Aaron's duty in regard to the lamp was to ensure that the lamps were arranged in such a way that they were shining their light out on what was in front of them. The instruction given to Aaron in Numbers 8, 2 is when you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. So these were supposed to be arranged in such a way that the light was, was shining forward. The location of the lamp, according to verse 3 of our text, is the location of this lamp is to be outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. And what this means then, if we think kind of of the geography of the tabernacle, is that the lamp is in the holy place, and it's next to the veil that leads into the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And this lamp, then, is to shine out, as it were, from the veil, out into the the holy place, onto that which was in front of it. And that which was in front of it was the golden table with the bread of the presence on it. So what we read about here in verses 5 through 9. And so uh, we see this, uh, the, uh, this issue of the, the lamp and the connection with the bread uh, drawn together elsewhere for us in Scripture. And so just to, to mention a couple of those, in uh, 2 Chronicles 13, 11, uh, we find Solomon's grandson, Abijah, king of Judah, going out to battle against Jeroboam of Israel. And just before they come to blows in the battle, Abijah reminds Jeroboam that they of the nation of Judah are the maintainers of orthodoxy and the true religion. And he's kind of listing out some of the things that they are maintaining in, in maintaining the true worship of God. And in that list, he says, every morning and evening, they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant incense. And the showbread is set on the clean table and the golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. And so as he's, as he's listing out some of the, some of the elements of their, their orthodoxy, their orthopraxy, he mentions this, this issue of the golden lampstand and the table with the showbread. And uh, you see this connection again, Hebrews 9.2, uh, which we read at the outset this evening. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table of the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And so there's this connection between the, the shining of the lamps 
and the bread on the table. It is by design and not by mere coincidence that these things go together. And so let's think then first about the bread of the presence, and then we'll try to to draw these things together and think about what this connection is between the lamps and the bread. Now, the prescriptions for the bread of the presence are there in verses 5 through 9. The bread on the table was to be these 12 cakes made of two-tenths of an ephah, and this is, this is going to be a big cake of bread. One-tenth of an ephah was the amount of the daily provision of manna for, uh, for one person. And so if you, if you read back the, uh, the command of the Lord in regard to the gathering of the manna, each person was allowed to gather a, a homer, or one-tenth of an ephah, of manna. And so the size of one of these cakes then would be uh, the amount of bread that two men could eat in a day. One source indicated that the, uh, the cake would be ten handbreadths long and five handbreadths wide. Now, I did uh, the first baking that I had done in a long time um, about uh, a little over a week ago, and I made a, uh, a loaf of bread, sort of, and it's nowhere near this size. And so this is, this is big, what, uh, what these are. These, these cakes are big, and there were to be 12 of them, obviously corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. Combined with the bread, then, is the frankincense, as seen in verse 7. This frankincense uh, was later to be offered up in fire to the Lord as a memorial portion, and then the bread was to be eaten by the priest. And, and again, the bread was to be changed out every Sabbath day. And this bread of the presence, of course, was the, uh, the famous bread of which we read in 1 Samuel 21, which Ahimelech the priest gave to David when David was on the run from, uh, from Saul. And so we find this in 1 Samuel 21, 6. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. And so to, to bring the, the imagery together then, we have the, the lamp placed next to the veil shining out onto the table where the bread is, the, uh, these 12 loaves representing the nation. The imagery symbolized the, the light of God's presence and blessing shining out on the nation of Israel in a manner reminiscent of the ironic blessing of Numbers 6, 24 through 26, where we read those, those well-known words, the Lord bless you and keep you, The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. I think one writer uh, was, uh, was on the right track when he expressed it this way. The arrangement of the holy place of the tabernacle therefore portrayed the ideal of Israel basking in the light of the divine presence in the house of God, abiding in the fires of his glory, Indeed, this glimpse into the glory of the house of God may be appreciated more fully when we recall that the paneled walls of the holy place were overlaid with gold, a feature that, together with the golden lampstand and the golden table, would have caused the light of the seven lamps to be reflected in a wondrous manner. And so this symbolic picture of Israel abiding in the blessed Sabbath day presence of the Lord is one that portrays life in the house of God a prospect foretasted in Israel's Sabbath day worship. And so this was, a, this was intended to be a picture of the presence of God shining on his people, which 
was to, to be a reality in the life of the people of Israel as they gathered together to worship the Lord. And this symbolic reality, of course, points toward and finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ, as Jesus himself is the light of the world. He shines light upon his people. As Jesus himself says, the one who walks with him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus himself is the true Israel. He is the true bread of God who came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And all of the priests of the new covenant, that is, all men and women who have a saving interest in Christ, feed on Christ, just as the priests under the old covenant would eat this bread of the presence. And in another way, these shadows point forward toward us as, as the people of God. And so in Revelation chapter 1, when John first saw Jesus in that vision, where did he see him? He saw Jesus standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands. And those seven lampstands, of course, represented the seven churches of Asia Minor. And we now, as God's people in this world, shine forth God's light into the world. To borrow Paul's language from Philippians 2, 14 and 15, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And I think it is also worthy of our notice that according to the prescriptions here in Leviticus 24, it was Aaron who was to tend these lamps and to keep them in order. And now our high priest, Jesus Christ, has taken over this duty and is tending his lamps, tending his churches, tending his people to keep them in order. And just as Aaron filled them with oil so that they would burn, so now Christ fills his people and his church with the Holy Spirit so that we may shine forth for the glory of God into the world. Now, if you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, you may remember that visit that, uh, that Christian had to the interpreter's house. And as he was there, the interpreter showed him these, these various imageries, these various pictures. And one of them was that there was a fire burning against the wall. And there was a, someone standing there who kept pouring water onto the fire, but the fire didn't go out. Instead, the fire kept burning more and more hotly. And when Christian asked what this meant, the interpreter uh, speaking of the, the person behind the wall who was pouring oil onto the fire, said, This is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that you saw the man stand behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach you, that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. This, in, in the, the image there in the interpreter's house, the, the man was standing behind a wall. You couldn't, you couldn't see him pouring oil on the fire until you stepped behind the wall and took a look. And, and so it is with us that left to ourselves, we would sputter out as soon as we had begun to burn. But Christ gives us his Holy Spirit and sustains us and keeps us going. It is by His grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit shed abroad in our hearts that our lights shine in this world. 
It is by the working of the Spirit within us that we don't burn out along the way. And so we should praise God for the work of Christ, the work of our high priest in us, a work which we see foreshadowed here in the work of Aaron there in the tabernacle. Now, let's proceed down and uh, look back to the text. We'll look down at verse 10 and and read down through the end of the chapter in, in verse 23. Now, the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, but let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. The alien, as well as the native, When he blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus... The one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, In these verses, we have what might at first appear to be two different things going on. On the one hand, we have this this man who uh, is of Egyptian and Israelite ancestry who struggles with an Israelite man and curses. He blasphemes the name of God. And then, in verses 17 through 22, we have this statement of the law that is sometimes called the the lex talionis, the, the law of the claw, punishment returned in kind on the basis of uh, the offense which was committed. And then at the end of the chapter, Moses uh, delivers the law, and then they execute the offender who had blasphemed. Now we might at first scratch our heads a little bit and wonder what's the connection between the, the blasphemy and then his execution, and then sandwiched in between there, this law of punishment and the lex talionis. And we might also wonder, what's the connection between this event here, beginning in verse 10, with what has come before, the, the, uh, the lamp and the showbread? I think the various threads here are actually not quite as random as they might at first appear. As to the connection with the, the earlier section of the chapter, 
It is worth noting that just as God had given to his people the light of his presence, he had also given his name to his people. As, uh, as one writer put it, in giving them his name, the Lord had given Israel himself, along with the ever-present help and benediction, such access to his presence opened the utmost being, uh, his divine presence in worship by invocation. And so, in other words, the, the Lord had, had given his, his presence, his blessing, and he had also given his name, which was to be a source of blessing and therefore was to be honored and reverenced by the people. And his name encompasses all that he is as the, the great I am, and therefore the name of the Lord was to be treated with reverence. Just think third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, certainly to curse God or even to use his name in anger or in any irreverent way is to take it in vain. Now more could be said certainly in regard to taking the Lord's name in vain, but we can say that much as a bare minimum, that to use it in such a way as to, as to utter a curse or to curse God or to use his name in anger or with irreverence is to take his name in vain. Now this particular man blasphemed the name of the Lord and just as they wanted to be clear as to what to do with this offender, they knew that this was wrong, they knew that this was a sin, but they were not clear yet what the punishment was to be. And so they, they take him into custody to await the Lord's sentence. And in what follows, we see the judgment of God as uh, given there in verses 15 through 22. And in this section, 15 through 22, shows us, I think, the connection between the sentence which the Lord renders on this blasphemer and the lex talionis. And again, the lex talionis is punishment in kind, that the punishment befits the crime and is proportional to the crime which was committed. And uh, in some of the specifics here, they were to execute the death penalty upon a person who took a human life. But when there was merely injury or the death of an animal, it did not require the death of the human life. The punishment was to befit the crime. If a man killed your ox, he needed to give you an ox to, to make up the loss. If a man injured a man, he was to be punished, but not killed. This is a useful standard to have, and this kind of law helps to prevent blood feuds and a seemingly endless chain of revenge. As uh, someone did something to somebody from your family, somebody does something back, just think kind of tit for tat, Hatfields and McCoys, on and on it goes, never seems to stop. And, and yet we have the Lord's way of dealing with these kind of things here given in this law. And this, I think, is how the lex talionis is related to the punishment of the blasphemer. And that is that the punishment is to befit the crime. By blaspheming the name of the Lord, this man had, as it were, attacked God. Obviously, None of us can kill God, but as sinful humans, we can still attack God. And that is what this man did 
by using the Lord's name, which was to be a source of blessing, therefore to be reverenced by the Israelites. This man did not do that, but cursed and blasphemed the name of the Lord, and therefore he, under the Old Testament law, was to be put to death. And though I don't think we are under obligations now in, in New Covenant times that, uh, that this kind of law needs to be uh, the law of the land. Certainly it's not the law of the church. The church doesn't have the power of the sword. The church only has the power of excommunication. But even though that is the case, nevertheless, this does show us just how holy the name of the Lord is and how reverent we are to conduct ourselves toward the Lord and in our usage of the Lord's name. It should be no wonder to us that the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Hallowed be your name. One of the old Reformation catechisms asked the question in regard to the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, what is that? In other words, what does that mean? God's name is indeed holy, by himself alone. However, we ask in this prayer that he will also be holy among us, that we would reckon God as holy and therefore would treat God as holy. The catechism went on and asked, how does that happen? How do, how do we do this? How do we hallow God's name? And the answer they gave was, where the word of God is clearly and purely taught, and we also live thereby in a holy manner as children of God. However, whoever teaches and lives in a manner other than the word of God profanes among us God's name. And so we now, as the people of God, the people of Christ, we have Christ's name placed upon us. And it is by Christ's name, in Christ's name, that we have access to the Father. Just think of of uh, the Gospel of John, how Christ exhorts us to, to pray in his name. We, we come on the basis of who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished before us. This is how we can have access to God, is because of Christ. And we find in Colossians 3.17 that in whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we are to do all in his name. And giving thanks to God the Father. And sometimes... Bearing the name of Christ means bearing reproach or bearing suffering. And therefore, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.14, he says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit, and of, uh, the, the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so we need to recognize that, that just as the people in the Old Covenant had received the name of God and had been given to them, was a, was a wonderful gift, a token of his presence and blessing to them. So now we, as the people of Christ, have the name of Christ upon us. This is how we approach God. This is how we are to live. It is in Christ's name that we are to do all that we do. And sometimes we may suffer for the sake of Christ's name. And that's fine. Because when we do the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And so what this means is that we too must hallow the Lord's name. We must hallow the name 
of God, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and love him and honor him and worship him with all that we are. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness and your love to us. We thank you that uh, we have the privilege of being called by the name of Christ and that by the name of Christ we can come to you in prayer and as much as he is our high priest and our mediator, Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would not uh, profane the name of Christ, but that we would honor his name and that we would shine forth as his people here in this world, uh, that we might be such as uh, would go out for the sake of his name, whether to friends or family or to faraway lands. We ask, Lord, that we would be people bearing the name of Christ and spreading among the world the, uh, the incense of his name, that others might be saved. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.